0: The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio, originally broadcast on KLO in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information, visit latterdayradio.com.
1: If you're looking for faith-affirming podcasts produced specifically for members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you've found us welcome. This is Latter-day Radio, and I'm GM Gerard your host, producer, and chief bottle washer. We have some guests who will share their experiences as to where they were on that momentous day, June the 8, 1978. If you remember, that's when the First Presidency released its historical announcement that all worthy male members, regardless of race or color, could now receive the priesthood. On that day, I was working on the seventh floor, hidden away in a little office inside at the church office building as a curriculum writer for the Welfare Services Department. I was alerted that something was going on because of all the noise outside my door, and when I walked out there were tears being shed and hugs shared. What was happening? Well, I found out, and it was a moving experience. Forty years later, on June the 8th, 2018, my broadcast partner Martin Tanner and I broadcast the following segments on KLO Radio in Salt Lake City. Now we're sharing it with you as podcasts on Latter-day Radio. There are three 40-minute segments that follow. I think it's worth a listen. I hope you like it. So our first interview today with people who remember where they were on June 8, 1978, is with Rex and Kathy Firth. They live in West Jordan. So let's go back into the past. Let's jump into the DeLorean time-traveling car and go back 40 years. Tell us where you were and what, you, how you found out about this and some things that happened to you that as a bishop, Brother Firth, and Sister Firth, what did you experience and, and how different is that from the way things are today? So Bishop Rex, why don't you start?
2: I first heard about this when I was standing in the room uh, looking at the scheduling board. I was a pilot in the Air Force, and I was interested in the schedule. And so I was looking at that when the scheduler came in and told me that he had just heard that the Mormon church was giving blacks the priesthood.
1: And what was this guy's name? Because that's significant.
2: Joe Jester. He was a was, jester. He, he was a jester, and He's... so I didn't know whether to believe it or not. <laughs> so I had to verify it from another source. From a reliable I, source. I, I finally uh, accepted it as, as truth. Okay. And I don't remember where that was. I, I know I asked a lot of people, and finally they said You yes, had the we, confirmation. heard that.
1: The jester was not joking this time. That
2: President Kimball had made an announcement and all worthy male members would be given the priesthood
1: now as a bishop what did this mean to you
2: well uh i was bishop of a ward in shreveport louisiana the first ward which had probably more blacks within the ward boundaries than whites but the membership all whites okay oh there were some uh, Mixed-race people? Any mixed? No, no mixed-race, but uh, maybe some uh, Orientals or uh, Some other Hispanics, people besides white Caucasians but, uh,
1: Caucasians, but no people of African descent.
2: No, none. And so uh, we pressed forward with that, and the missionaries began to proselyte the blacks.
1: For the first for, time, probably.
2: First, oh, yeah, they were encouraged mm-hmm. not to proselyte them. Because of that but uh, they did and uh, it didn't happen right away but I'm checking out my journal uh, within a month or two uh, there was a, a young couple that they taught and we baptized them
1: and you told me earlier that they didn't remain in the church
2: no they had severe opposition to their decision
1: not necessarily the white members
2: some white members, Some yes. white members, but... Mostly yes. their own Mostly people. Mostly their own people came after them and, and got after them for joining a church that was anti-black.
1: So it took a little while to get over that, get over did. that stigma, didn't it?
2: It did, especially down there where the Civil War was fought over the, that, keeping the blacks as slaves.
1: And from what you told me, the Civil War at that time was still being fought... In the minds and hearts of people, wasn't it? It
2: was. Yes. They, traditions don't die. Things are taught as a child are not changed easily.
1: No, well, it takes a generation or two. Now, mm-hmm. Kathy, you told me a little something earlier that uh, the experiences that you had uh, as a sister in the ward, as the wife of the bishop.
3: Yes. Um, if, if I could share this... Um... The a lady that I visit taught. uh, They had a black servant, and which she treated with total respect, but as a servant, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: and there was no, we are. uh, I wanted that that black servant to know that I was her sister, that Mm -hmm. we were the same. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't share that with her because of the sister that I visit taught.
1: Because well, there was kind of a caste yes, system there. Yes, a
3: total caste system. Well, years later, when we were on the island of Cyprus serving, we were in a little branch. As senior
1: missionaries, right? As
3: senior missionaries. My husband was the branch president. And for a while, I was the Relief Society president. And we some of the members were black sisters from... Sri Lanka, from Zimbabwe, we had Filipinos, we had, a, we had members from Bangladesh. We had them from all over. Anyway, and most of the members of the branch were not white. And, but this was interesting. when we first got there, those sisters would come up to me and bow to me.
1: Oh my God. And
3: this was only in um, this was just 10 years ago. And they would come up and bow to me and I would raise them and say, I am your sister. We are the same. We call each other sisters because we are the same in God's eyes. You will not do that to me. I need to do that to you because of the faith that you are exhibiting in joining the church. Anyway. And the courage. And the courage. Yes, absolutely. And it was just marvelous to see their growth and understanding happen. And they would hug us and say, You are my sister. And one of, and we would treat them just the same, just the same. And they couldn't understand it for a long time. But then the joy came. And then when they realized, you know, And they could come into our home and be treated just the same. And
1: that you weren't faking it.
3: Not faking it a bit. One of the sisters actually was hurt. She fell out of a window and broke her femur. What's this bone?
2: Yes.
3: Her femur. And she had nowhere to go. No one would take her. The people that she worked for, it was the servant class. The people that she worked for, because she couldn't work, that was it.
1: She was like no good anymore.
3: Yeah. And so we... Uh, senior couples were not supposed to take her in but we there was no place else for her to go and so we took her in and um, helped her through it and it, it, she was my sister she was my sister Where else would I send her?
2: It's fantastic one interesting event happened we we like to take him out to eat at a nice restaurant. Mm-hmm. Which they'd never done before. They had never done that in their life. They had never done that in their life. And um, we had uh, one sister from Zimbabwe, Africa, one from Sri Lanka, and one I think was Filipino. One of the Filipinos. Uh-huh. And we talking multi
1: multicultural, multi genetic. Yes. Right. We would take here.
3: them out to eat, not as a whole group, but just a few at a time to have the experience of going out to eat.
1: Because he couldn't afford it?
2: it, And the uh, astonishment that registered on the people at the restaurant. Oh, my gosh, really? To me, it was just comical to see. For us to walk in. They couldn't believe that two white people from America were sitting at the table eating with a black African, a a dark lady from uh, Sri Lanka Lanka and one from the Philippines.
1: That's so
3: It was very interesting to see people's faces and because we were socializing with them.
2: Servants that we were with, that, that we were treating to dinner, that had never happened in their life. It was a first-time experience for them, and they, they were just astonished.
1: If we live the gospel and we do the things that you did when you were missionaries, that speaks volumes about our doctrine. It says a lot more than a press release or anything else we might want to publish, that if we do unto others, like we'd have someone do unto us. Mm -hmm. And we share the gospel by our example. And I'd like to thank you, Brother and Sister Firth, for doing that, for your missionary service, and for taking some time with us here today on Latter-day Radio. you have another thing to add, Kathy?
3: In our ward now, there is a mother-daughter... And a granddaughter. They live under the same roof. They moved into our ward, and they walked into our chapel. They joined the church somewhere else and came here. And...
1: And where are they from?
3: The south, and...
2: Trinidad.
1: Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) And they lived
3: in the south in Alabama for a while. And, but when they walked in I almost stood up and danced because (laughs) I just want to get to know them and their culture and the sisters have just accepted them so much they welcome them into their classes one of them uh, is one of the leaders in young women's it to get to know them is a marvelous gift to us
1: and it's a gift to all of us so the revelation on the priesthood wasn't just for the African Americans it blesses it blesses even today all of the membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks, Rex and Kathy, for those great stories. We'll be hearing from Jerry Avont and John Hart in just a moment from the Church News. This is Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
0: Latter-day Radio is the originator of this faith-affirming podcast. If you like it or have comments or requests, send us an email at latterdayradio.com. We're not done yet. More faith-affirming podcast content on its way. Stay with us.
1: And I'm here with Jerry Avent and John Hart. Two veterans from the church news who were there on that day on the 8th of June 1978 with some very interesting stories to tell. So, Jerry, was it exciting?
4: Well, it was quite exciting, and I remember it as being June 9th on a Friday morning. And we were in the church news department and a copy boy from the Deseret News Daily, and he said, have you heard the news? And we looked at him like, no, is there news? And he said, yes. He says, the blacks are going to receive the priesthood. And this copy boy happened to not be a Latter-day Saint. And so I didn't know whether he was serious or whether this was some kind of a joke. But within a matter of moments, the phone rang, and it was an official call from church offices that our editor, Del Van Orden, took that call. And uh, we heard the news that this was true. Yeah, we had gone to press, I think, the press might have still been running for the daily. The uh, out-of-state edition had been published the day before and was already on its way uh, and we were almost finished with the daily run and so Dell had to make a, an on-the-spot decision you know do we stop the press to get it in for a few thousand copies or do we just let it go. Let it go and pick up next week and that's what we did.:
5: After that, uh, then the phone started ringing. First, just one call and then another call, and they came in, as Jerry will tell you, they came in from all over the United States right away,
4: right away, and people would call them and say the truth. That's what they wanted.
1: Were to they, Were they calling you to ask this question, or they, were they, they were calling, calling church information or both?
4: They were calling church news uh, because they would have heard it from a neighbor who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody, and they just, you know, before they passed it on, they wanted to know, you know, is this true? And that was our frustration. Here was the biggest news story you know since the um, the manifesto
1: that's right as far as and, the church is concerned yeah
4: and uh, we just we had to wait a week you know before we could come out and verify yes this is true so people that weekend would be getting their church news and there was no mention of it do not you
1: put a wrapper yes. around it or something it huh. was
5: too, it was too late you physically could not catch it yeah. that was just the way it went because the the paper was printing and it was in the mailroom
4: it late. was gone. That horse was down the road, and we couldn't catch it. But it, it, it was running away. <laughs> it
5: didn't make too much difference in the big picture, but the, the repercussions were fairly significant. Within um, three weeks, President Kimball called for a doubling of the missionaries, and he focused. In, oh, really? He focused in on local missionaries, which had never been focused in on before, probably because of this issue. But he called for local missionaries to. You know, supply their own missions, and that was pretty radical for that
1: particular. We used to call them state missionaries. Is that what yeah. you're saying? No, no, nope. no. I'm talking about local missionaries going full time missions
5: in their country. Oh,
1: like Germans serving in Germany, and right. or uh, Brazilian Brazilian serving in Brazil. And I imagine Brazil was probably one of those places they thought, "Oh, my word! What are we going to do in Brazil?" All of a sudden. We have a lot more people to proselyte, right? Mm hmm. Mm
5: hmm. Well, Helvetio Martinez was the uh, first black general authority, and he was also the public affairs director for the Sao Paulo State back then. So, um, you know, that, that really precipitated this decision as much as anything. Go ahead.
4: Yeah. Well, if you're talking about people calling us, we immediately started calling people throughout the world to get local responses and I had some friends who happened to be well they were living in San Juan Puerto Rico at the time, at the time Frank and Eileen Tally oh. and I had I knew them quite well and uh, they traveled throughout the the islands because of their church callings and I knew that they would have their finger on the pulse of what's going okay. on and so I called and I spoke with Eileen and um she gave me some of the, the information you know, that she had received that she said that um, she immediately called one of her friends that lived in Haiti, and his reaction was common. You know, is it true? You know, really? And, uh, you know, it was qu- quite an emotional thing. And she said that his response was a joyful exclamation that he just shouted, glory to God. Mm-hmm. And then his next comment was, I can't believe it. Is it really, really true? And she assured him that it was, and then he told her that he had been uh, talking about the church with, with over twenty-one friends, and he said, "I they're ready to be baptized. When can missionaries come?" And so this people of color, people of color, almost all of them, because he was in Haiti, he was of African descent, as were most of the Haitians, and so this just sort of opened the the floodgates for that, and then. Eileen had just dozens of stories, and she told about one man that on Sunday, before the announcement came, it was a fast Sunday, in the San Juan branch, and this brother, Brother Diaz, had been a member for more than 20 years, and he bore his testimony, and he said that, he said, I have waited years for the priesthood, and I will wait forever if I have to. Wow. Well, that was on Sunday. And then on Friday, one of his LDS neighbors, you know, happened to be neighbors in San Juan, came running out of her house, you know, just shouting the news that uh, what she had heard on the radio. And he said that he stood there like he'd been thunderstruck. He said, I just could not believe it. And then uh, the following Sunday... He was sitting in the hallway waiting to be interviewed, prior to receiving the priesthood, and a member came by and says, "Oh, they're keeping you waiting."
0: And he <laughs> said,
4: "He said I've waited more than 20 years. What's 20 more minutes?" And and Sister Tally described, you know, the the Sunday that the announcement was made on Friday, and then the Sunday at church. She said everybody was crying and hugging each other, and said. It was just a joyful time. And so that was typical of the comments that we heard from our readers. And John made uh, lots of contacts.
5: When I uh, went to Nigeria in 1995, <laughs> I interviewed a, m- a member of the state presidency named president, and he had a little shrine, President Kimball, built up on his bedstead.
1: A real shrine? <laughs> it wasn't, no, it was okay. just a monument, okay. but...
5: Fine. He told me that that night that they, there had been kind of a whisper that had crossed around that people had heard, mm-hmm. and he spent more than an hour and a half with an old radio tuning it back and forth to try to verify that that had happened. And so uh, it was a pretty exciting time for them. They
1: just, uh, you know the story of the uh, Maybes. And R- Randall he was he had been uh, the mission president in Switzerland, according to a close friend of mine who served under him as a missionary. And I've seen the picture, and it looks like that scene from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. Where you've got <laughs> a long line of people standing, going, snaking up the bank, waiting to be baptized. How many missionaries have wanted to have that? Yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: Wilford yeah. w- would have experienced, right? Yeah. Let, let me just go and cover the...
5: the Events in uh, Dominican Republic and Haiti, they all were precipitated by a great spiritual outpouring of of uh, very epic proportions and some very dramatic things happened. Some people moved in, some Latter-day Saints moved in, the priesthood was announced, they began teaching people. This happened over and over again, in, like in Ghana, it happened in Nigeria, it happened in um, a number of other countries where... People were prepared. So this timing of this mission, or this announcement, was something that was global uh, in preparation. It was spiritual uh, in in guidance. And uh, it was uh, manifest by the, the quick growth of the church in these countries. And if you look at the numbers, you can may do that on another program, but you can look at the numbers of how quickly the church was established in these countries see that there was a, a, a planning that went far beyond anything the church. Did.
1: I'm talking about the hand of the Lord. Mm-hmm.
4: Yep. Hastening the work. You know, yeah. The people were prepared for the announcement. Uh, it wasn't just happenstance that um, that member in Haiti had 21 friends ready to be baptized you know, before mm-hmm. the announcement was made. And that picture, by the way, was shot by Janeth Cannon. His wife. Yeah. 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 So it, um a very historic photo. Um, so, but, you know,
5: uh, the timing had another effect, too. Politically speaking, it would have been extremely difficult for the church to have maintained that policy within the next decade and decades after. And, and right now, it's even unthinkable to have some some kind of a policy like that. Simply uh, couldn't, it, you know, it, I don't know exactly what would happen, but it would have been very, very terrible for the church if they had maintained that policy, even a year two years beyond that. Mm That the timing of that thing was exactly right.
1: And look at Brazil. I mean, what do we have, a million members in Brazil, and how many of those members are people of color? Probably 40, 50% of them, I would guess. The
5: people in Nigeria uh, that came into the church, very dramatic kind of conversions. They would have a dream at night of a building. They would be driving down the road. They would see that building. They would stop their car. They would go in. They would talk to the people and then get baptized. It was uh, a a people that were very prepared.
1: Well, I still am thinking regularly about Elder Bednar's talk in conference about being meek and lowly of heart here was a whole continent of people who are meek and lowly of heart. And how much more success would we have in the church if we could find more people like that who were Mm -hmm. meek and lowly of heart and Mm -hmm. willing to accept the Lord's uh, hand in their lives?
4: Yeah, and Don had a lot of experiences of traveling in South America and Brazil and his uh, mentioning of Nigeria. Um, And I... I, one of the, my favorite pictures that I've taken during my career was at the Johannesburg, South Africa Temple dedication in 1985, and I was standing outside, watching people come out and taking pictures of members you know, coming out of the, one of the sessions of the dedication. And I noticed uh, a couple, and in South Africa at the time they were called coloreds, mixed race. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this couple walking out. I was taking pictures as they progressed, and then a woman came from the other side, a white woman. And when those two women met, they just embraced. And to look out on the plaza and here were blacks and whites and people of various nationalities. I don't know how many different languages were represented, including African languages, and that all was able to happen because of that revelation.
1: Thanks, Jerry and John, for sharing these stories with us and your experiences of that day 40 years ago.
0: This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around.
1: We're back here on Latter-day Radio with Jerry Avon and John Hart. So Jerry, you were telling us you had the opportunity to uh, interview President Kimball
4: Uh, Yes. In December of that year, six months after the revelation, uh, the entire Church News staff went to President Kimball's office. And we interviewed him more or less recapping the year, highlights of 1978. And one of the questions that we asked him was if he would be willing to share any of the circumstances under which that revelation came. And these are President Kimball's words taken straight from the transcript of that interview. He said, I went to the temple alone and especially on, sad- on Sundays and Saturdays when there were not organizations in the temple when I could have it alone. I went on. It went on for some time as I was searching for this because I wanted to be sure. We held a meeting of the Council of the Twelve in the temple on the regular day We considered this very seriously and thoughtfully and prayerfully. I asked the 12 not to go home when the time came. I said, now would you be willing to remain in the temple with us? And they were. I offered the final prayer and I told the Lord if it wasn't right, if he didn't want this change to come in the church, that I would be true to it all the rest of my life and I would fight the world against it if that's what he wanted. We had the special prayer circle Then I knew that the time had come. I had a great deal to fight, of course, myself largely, because I had grown up with this thought that Negroes should not have the priesthood, and I was prepared to go all the rest of my life till my death and fight for it and defend it as long as it was. But this revelation and assurance came to me so clearly that there was no question about it. And that was what President Kimball said the church news staff and you were there it was there we were ear witnesses <laughs> <laughs> to, to the person that was most involved in this and
1: let's not forget his age his generation where he came from but here was a man who always to me seemed to be a champion of the downtrodden mm-hmm.
4: A very compassionate man.
1: He looked at people with, with with meager means and had great empathy for them. And so that's why he was probably the one that would ask the question. You know, after he uh, gave
5: that, they had 12, looked at each other, and they said, you know, this has been such a sacred experience, we better not talk about it. And so they said, okay, we won't talk about it. They didn't for a while, but in private little meetings after that, uh, I think Jerry had the same experience as I did. We I heard at least three of. Them. I heard Elder Haight. I think I heard President Hunter, uh, maybe Elder Perry, and certainly Elder McConkie got up and said essentially the same thing in his conference talk. And so, every one of those th- people that talked gave essentially the same uh, witness of it. That is to say that they just it was not a Vision, uh, it was not a you know Cecil B. DeMille voice coming out of the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a very powerful outpouring of the spirit that was very touching to them, and they all said the same thing. And so, we're comfortable that that's you know the revelation. You know, and when we receive personal revelation, it's much the same. You just feel have a good feeling, you know which way to go, and it was like that that they just received it. And I, I suppose that when uh, Moses got ready to cross the Red Sea. That he felt something something like this I mean you don't just walk into the water without some kind of assurance that something good <laughs> is going to come out of this and so that was the same thing that they had here now one there were there were a number of changes that came to the church as a result of this, and as I mentioned earlier, missionary work was substantively altered after this revelation. President Kimball began pushing for more missionaries. The, at that time the church had about 25,000 missionaries and he wanted he he made the comment in this interview that what we really if we had 130,000 missionaries then we could maybe get somewhere 130
1: Oops. we're not quite there yet no, are we no we're not there
5: yeah. yet. uh but he pushed that and then he pushed the local missionaries and this this uh local missionary development in in the country strengthened the country immensely two ways number one they started Emphasizing that to their youth, and number two, when these missionaries came home from their missions, they provided uh, local leadership that they didn't have before. Right, and so at that point, the whole church changed because uh, they had a lot stronger local units, and you have that now. You see that, and that's a direct result of the revelation and President Kimball's emphasis,
1: not just in areas where. Uh, there were people uh, with African roots. No. You think it was a widespread a lot
5: benefit? In Hispanic areas uh, Mexico, uh, Guatemala, uh, Central America, uh, Argentina was very strong, uh, Ecuador was stronger, uh, Colombia. You just look back at those individual countries and you can see how much they've grown. It's very,
1: uh,
5: you know preparatory for the kind of challenges that we You
1: know, I had a conversation with a, um, Brother Holsinger when we were on our little special mission to Switzerland. And he's a PhD sociologist, mm-hmm. still completing his mission in, in Switzerland. And he spoke with a, a, a renowned sociologist demographer at the University of um, uh, Chicago, where he was uh, either getting his PhD or teaching there. And I don't know how much later than the revelation this conversation took place, but uh, Brother Holsinger told me, he said, he says, you now you've done it. And he said, why, what do you mean? He said, your church will be consumed by what you've uh, done and the responsibilities you will feel as you uh, serve uh, these people and proselyte uh, the people in the continent of Africa. Uh, We'll have a little interview with uh, some dear friends of ours, the Barlows, who have served two missions in Africa and I'll pose that same question to them. Uh, I've been told, and, and I don't know, this is probably anecdotal or hyperbolic, but that in some missions like Ghana, for example, we could probably baptize an entire stake every year because of these people's willingness to accept the gospel. But you've got to obviously have the infrastructure. You need the leadership. People need to be trained to take on these responsibilities. But I know, John, you, you've done a lot of traveling, and you did after uh, the the revelation in 78. What did you discover? You've told us a little, a few stories about where you were and what you saw, and uh, your experiences in various places. So tell us about them. Um, let me just make a point first, and that is that it was right
5: after this that uh, the local missionaries started taking leadership. And you remember that Mexico at this time started getting all these 21-year-old bishops and 22-year-old bishops, <laughs> 32-year-old state presidents, and 35-year-old area authorities. And that's a result of the priesthood revelation, but it doesn't—it isn't a very obvious one, and isn't one that's particularly noticed. Um, as far as stories, uh, I just was blown away by the quality of the missionaries in Nigeria. These young men that would come in—you uh, know—the whole mission. There, you know, a few white people, but it—it it was black people, and I'm—I'm going to take advantage of this point, but just that if somehow we could get rid of racism, we would be so different. Because when I went to Africa, the people were different there. The blacks here are good people, and you make friends with them. But it's not like Africa where they don't have that oppression that they had to overcome. Mm -hmm. I stood up there in front of that group, and there were maybe a couple of thousand priesthood leaders. And uh, this is kind of an emotional thing for me. But I was just sitting up there and, and they were looking at me because I was taking pictures with President uh, Hinckley, and I felt a wave of love come up from them that was palpable. You could touch it. they were good people, and they didn't have any any inhibitions to loving me and I felt no inhibition to loving them, and I wondered what the world would be like if we could somehow become a brotherhood like that <clears throat> and uh you know just relate to each other as brothers instead of having to deal with the kind of issues that we do in America. Now, my my uh my little point is done. I'm not gonna go back on that, but uh while I was there, just wonderful, wonderful people. Very caring people. Uh that were looking out for each other. I I could go on but I don't know what I said.
1: Well uh, I know the Barlows have some incredible stories that they'll share and we hope to hear from them in the in the next segment. Uh but uh I'll have him share the story about the garbage truck. So you don't want to go anywhere until you hear the garbage truck story. Um, anything either either one of you would like to add about, uh, in retrospect, uh, as Jerry said, maybe the biggest announcement since the uh, manifesto. manifesto in terms of how it affected the church, not just people of African descent, the whole church was affected, yeah. don't you think?
4: Mm-hmm. And and I have a, a very strong testimony that this came about not because of any kind of social...
1: Or political pressure. Yeah. Yeah,
4: it was not just, it wasn't to be socially appropriate. You know, because President Kimball said, I was willing to fight it...
1: till so he died.
4: ...for the rest of my life, because, you know, this was... This was something of the Lord, and um, I I cannot speak to the history, you know, of what came before the revelation. I'm not an expert on that, and I would not even pretend to be, but I am firmly convinced that this was a revelation that came through the power of the the Lord.
1: Well said. Thank you, Jerry and John. Articles in both LDS Living and Last Weekend's Church News can help fill in the blanks. The LDS Living article provides a graphic illustrating each step of how the church has gained a stronger and stronger foothold in the continent of Africa until today, in fact, there are 400,000 members there.
0: This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com